Hi, I'm Rajoshi Dash and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. Today I have with me Kumam Davidson Singh, who is the co-founder of the Chinky Homo Project, digital queer anthology of Northeast India. Kumam is also the founder of Matai Society. He's an ethnographer, curator, writer, and educator, and is based out of Moirang, Manipur, India. Welcome, Kumam. Thank you so much for having me. Long time. So I don't know if we have like we have formally met before, but I have seen you around in Delhi for sure. perhaps in JNU, perhaps in Pride or any of the other queer events uh, in Max Muller Bhavan. Uh, but I don't think we have like spoken on one-to-one uh, basis. I think I have better memory than you. Really? Did we speak? <laughs> yeah, I think I have better memory than you. Uh, I've, I, I remember seeing you quite often in JNU and elsewhere, actually. Um, so, yeah, but you're right. We never spoke to each other. At length, at best, we must have said hello, you know. Uh, wow. Yeah, that, that's there. So yeah. this is our, actually our first long conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah, I spoke to Pavel, of course, uh, with whom you co-founded the Chinky Homo Project. And we did talk about the name and uh, the need for such a platform. But I was wondering if you could uh, tell me a bit about how uh, both of you came together to conceive it and what kind of support you got or you maybe you didn't get while you were uh, trying to come up with this project. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it always takes me back to, you know, uh, daily, daily d- days when, uh, you know, when we founded DCHP. Uh, it's not one of those uh, really, really boardroom uh, meetings uh, you know, boardroom meetings or, uh, you know, collective, uh, collective uh, being formed in such a, you know, uh, in such a formalized, uh, in such a well-planned out uh, way. I mean, TCHP is really, I mean, honestly, something that grew out of our conversations. Like Pavel and I back then, you know, starting from 2011, 12, we spoke a lot, we shared a lot. Uh, about uh, queerness and you know chinkiness, uh, also being a Maitai, being a queer, being a Northern person out there. You know, we spoke about that a lot. Uh, we felt the invisibilization of people like us out there. You know, uh, so many many years of conversations around it. Uh, many many introspections. Uh, I think it was in a way very natural that somewhere in 2018, I was back to Manipur briefly and out of the blue, I just kind of, uh, you know, put posted an Instagram post, um, which talked about chinkiness and homo as categories that, you know, people like us struggle with, you know, struggle with uh, categories that is so entwined with our lives and uh, also at the same time not so sure how to channel it out you know how to deal with it right so um, that that one instagram post which talked about this you know with a lot of angst with a lot of angst and ferocity of course uh, 
I think that kind of spark, uh, I, more conversation that spark a, a clearer idea that, you know, uh, this sentiments that we feel like me, Pavel and other people out there, these sentiments are valid sentiments, you know, and it meant something, not just the two of us, but, uh, it sort of resonated with others as well. And I think that way, TCHP kind of really came into being after that, you know, in 2018, we created the WordPress blog, then we created uh, Instagram and Facebook uh, accounts and Twitter later on. So that really is a very, uh, that really is a story of how it started. But just to kind of re-emphasize, it's really born out of those conversations, you know, conversations which were not documented also, you know, it's very personal conversation that way between the two of us and also others, you know, around us. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's how I like to see mm-hmm. the, you know, the origin of DCHPS. That's, that's how I like to see. Of course, we did, you know, we did wrote, write an article for, you know, Tarsis in Plain Speak Digital Magazine. We also went to, you know, speak at Chennai Queer Chronicles. That was definitely there as well. But I think what really kind of planted the seeds down deep down was our conversations and our friendships and solidarities. Yeah. So you knew Pavel uh, before coming to Delhi? No, actually, we accidentally met in a queer meeting in 2011 at Sapurjad, I think, uh, engendered, I don't know, maybe engendered space back then. Uh, Delhi Queer Campus was a youth, young people, young youth led, you know, queer group. And I happened to know a few of the people there and, you know, they were doing a meetup and I was like, why not? You know, let me go. Uh, accidentally, Pavel also came with somebody there and I also went with somebody there, you know, like, like some friends. Uh, we accidentally met there, you know, and yeah, I mean, we didn't become friends, you know, like, uh, just like that. We didn't become friends overnight, uh, but we did meet for the first time there. So I didn't know Pavel before I came to Delhi. Uh, uh, I met Pavel only in 2011 and, uh, and, and between 2011 and 2018, many years passed, right? Before PCHP actually kind of came into being, right? So yeah, that's how we came to meet and the journey. And I'm wondering, you mentioned that, uh, you're from the Methi community, uh, right? Mm. And I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I've seen a lot of, uh, Post articles around uh, ethnicity and identity, uh, which specifically sort of talks about the Methi uh, community. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was wondering what that means uh, for you and for the platform, or given that the fact that it's representing uh, Northeast, which is so diverse and you know so complicated, like any other place. But I guess when I say diverse, I also mean let's say we can just take one state. Uh, and there are different people from the different ethnicities, uh, you know, different languages. So I was wondering how this platform tends to represent Northeast. Right. Um, well, I think queerness stands out first. Queerness or transness, I think, really stand out first, you know, uh, you know, in the kind of storytelling that we do uh, you know, on this platform, on TCHP. Uh, right. So queerness transfers stand out really first. Uh, and, and let's say ethnicity or religious identity, class, 
and other things follow for sure. So I personally, uh, I personally haven't felt that the mightiness of me being, uh, you know, let's say the mightiness as being a hurdle or 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 or, or an issue, um, you know, in the kind of storytelling that we we do on the platform. Also, at the same time, uh, we haven't had a lot of narrative from from the my. I mean, we have had some, you know, from uh, you know, from the from the magic community uh, on the platform, but we also had you know other stories from you know like Sikkim or Sikkim Assam, uh, Mizoram, Nagaland, and less yes, more from some states, more less from some states and and some communities that's there. So I think as much uh, I think. Uh, that mightiness as an identity or an ethnic label hasn't sort of played the kind of, uh, hasn't been such a, let's say, um, difficult uh, element to work with as, as much as far as TCP is concerned. Uh, because again, like I said, uh, queerness and transness really stand out in the stories that we do. But also, uh, there is also... On the other hand, the uh, how how do I say the in the invisibility of other communities, you know, mm-hmm. has has been a concern for sure, you know, uh, both personally as well as for TCHP as a platform. So the invisibility of let's say other tribal queer trans persons, for example, be it Kuki or be it Naga or be it Mizu or be it uh, other let's say uh, you know other smaller communities, you know, smaller communities as such. So that has been a, a concern. That has been an issue that ECHP tries to grapple with, which means uh, trying to get deeper into the region, get 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 out of the urban, you know, population and circle and, you know, enter, uh, you know, communities and regions, uh, from where we haven't heard stories or from where we haven't received stories, right? So that is there, uh, definitely. Um, I don't know if I answered your question uh, lucidly. But yeah, no, yeah. it does. It does. When it comes to uh, the Northeast, there is so much of talk about uh, different ethnicities, but also about different religions uh, and also caste. So I was wondering how that plays into, uh, you know, your decisions that, you or Pavel or anybody else currently working uh, with you uh, makes as to whom to approach. Like I was wondering how you select your stories or, uh, you know, storytellers, which stories should make it. Because I also noticed that on the website, which is beautiful, you also have illustrations, right? And and graphics mm. and, and drawings. So, so and, and it seems like... Um, immediately you're drawn to certain stories because of the way they are presented. So I was wondering how all that happens uh, and whether uh, mm-hmm. your uh, either religion or ethnicity uh, plays any role into it. Uh, well, that's, a very, that's not an easy question to answer, <laughs> as, uh, which, means, which means the process of building this archive, this platform, the process of documenting these stories and telling these stories. All of this haven't been easy. Uh, the question wasn't easy. So is the process, which has been very, very challenging as well. Uh, we, 
TCHP really, really has a lot of limitations that way also. We operate, we function with bare minimum resources, you know. Uh, you know, we, we don't have an office, uh, you know, we don't have funding, right. So we, we operate, we function, we thrive, you know, uh, with little resources, uh, and more so on solidarities and friendships and, you know, uh, you know, activist, artistic spirits, right. Having said that, the fact that it's still an English medium archive, an English medium uh, anthology, an English medium platform means that we are yet to be out there, you know, in the peripheries, in the margins of the margin, right? We're yet out, we're yet to be there, you know. English comes with various limitations, you know, to do stories in English comes with various limitations. Having said that, we have done some translated stories as well, translated stories which came in their native language and was later translated into English that also have been there. So how do we really select stories? Again, it's a non-funded project. It's pretty much a community-owned, you know, space and project. So uh, there are not very, very, let's say, specified process or structure to it. Uh, I think there would be some, let's say, uh, you know, I think there would be just few parameters, let's say, you know, we, we won't do a story which is very, you know, let's say, uh, religious extremist, you know, a queer trans story, but with a, with a tone of religious extremism. We won't do a story like that, for example, you know, uh, we won't do a story which is on your face, you know, transphobic or homophobic. And it definitely can come from the community as well, right? So we, we would find ways to deal with those kind of stories and people and storytellers. Uh, otherwise, how have we done it? Uh, it's, it's actually very, again, you know, very, uh, lovely in the sense that, uh, it was, you know, a, you know, the, when the project started, it was among such a small circle, you know, amongst us, like Pavel and me from, Pavel, me and some people from Manipur, some other Kwetans Fox from Nagaland, Mizoram, Assam. You know, we met at a certain conference, uh, and some of us who have known each other from before, we were like, you know, hey, you know, we're just starting this platform, you know, like, uh, we like to tell more stories. We like to tell stories. Do you, have you written your story? Do you have a story you want to tell? So like that, uh, you know, we curated some few stories, you know, and that few stories being amplified through various platforms and, People like, oh, sorry, I mean, spaces, platforms like Feminism India, which actually wanted to republish some of the stories, you know, I'm just saying an example. So it kind of amplified in a way that it created avenues for other stories to come. So after, a, you know, so initially it was through, you know, friends that you've known from before uh, or through collectives. Like, for example, uh, Hukia was a collective based in Assam back then, uh, you know. The fact that Pavel and I had the privilege to know all this, you know, like collectives and uh, groups that operate in its region and state, we would be like, we would go via them as well, you know, via these collectives and, you know, groups that, uh, you know, and, and get some stories, you know, coming from there through them, right? So that's how stories used to come, which would then be like edited, uh, proofread, then published on the blog. And then work with some, you know, visual uh, materials, be it photo, be it sketches, because also we don't want to, I mean, uh, you know, 
we want we wanted to play with some visuals as well because people in that sense express through different mediums so we didn't want to limit to just words so uh, we would play with visuals as well so that's really how the stories were uh, you know done curated and uh, shared with our audience and our audience uh being mostly mostly uh, you know people from the region uh you know uh, sort of located in metropolitan cities mostly uh or the ones who are in urban spaces in the regions such as guwahati or aizol or kohima or imphal right so that that really was there you know in the, in the beginning uh but story uh documentation or the process of you know doing these stories have evolved over the years definitely um one way in which it has evolved is that at some point uh, open call also work you know like you know we did an open call uh you know on the on our platform and then stories were sent in right uh, so open call also worked at some point uh but again i think it still is very very intimate it still is very very uh you know personal intimate close you know uh something that really kind of uh founded on friendships and solidarity mm-hmm. you know the, even though we tried open call i think that's not really our you know way you know our way is to you know knowing someone personally you know through a friend or through a collective or through uh you know another common friend uh, or this person that person and then that person's life uh you know sort of being shared with us life story being said with us and we collectively decide to tell the story and based on that uh, agreement then we push out the story so i think it continues to be intimate based on friendship you know or and solidarities and also yeah uh, also the activist spirit you know the activist spirit and uh and the creative spirit to continue storytelling of our own right so yeah that's how i like to sum up yeah so i remember i think uh, on the website it says somewhere that i think part of the project was perhaps uh like partly funded by santa barbara so i was wondering if you have any collaborations now with them yes yes so few collaborations have happened over the years you know of the last four years uh, while the initial two years was completely completely non funded in the third and the fourth year we got to collaborate on a uh, couple of funded projects let's say sub projects for example so it's still on the uh, you know basic uh, you know let's say basic line of our work which is documenting stories and storytelling right curating and storytelling right so it's still on that basic premise but uh, pandemic series which is a which is a, which is a particular uh, emphasis on queer trans lives during pandemic right so that was funded uh, partly by santa barbara ucsb and also by sathi india through a fellowship that i received one like mm-hmm. a one year fellowship that sati had given me so it's in a way a joint uh, joint collaborative work that happened with sati and uh, santa barbara giving us some resources to amplify and you know uh, continue the work uh, on 
on the pand- on, on the work which was titled Pandemic Series. So that that was funded, uh, and then also happened. Yes, we exist campaign also happened. That was non-funded. That was a you know collaborative campaign which we did with numerous others, uh, you know, CBOs and collectives actually across Northeast India. You know, Kobdo, uh, Manipur LGBTQ, Atma, Ita. And some more, right? So it was a very, very community-based collaboration that happened. And most recently, we're doing a small project uh, under Reframe gener- Generalities, and we're doing a mini podcast. <laughs> like it's, I, I would like to call it mini podcast uh-huh. because we're doing only three episodes. Uh, you know, it's like a pilot project sort. So yeah, we are exploring all this. Uh, yeah, so this have been few of the sub projects within TCHP that we did. Oh, I forgot to mention. Uh, so there is another which is connected to TCHP, but not really a project project of TCHP. Uh, so I collaborated. I did. I collaborated with Mariwala Health Foundation Initiative. It's also called Mariwala Initiative, actually. So uh, we have been doing a book, an anthology on mental health stories from Northeast India through mm-hmm. a lens of queerness, transness, yeah, and yeah, and through a through a queer trans feminist lens basically. So a book is also due to come out, uh, which which partly is is connected to PCT, but not really a project per se. But yeah, that's also there. Uh, can you repeat the name of the uh, the health Foundation. So it's uh, it's yeah it's a uh, it's it's called Mariwala Health Foundation. The the but uh, but the organization that I'm working with is Mariwala Health Initiative. Okay. So I sometimes of sort of collate the two uh, by mistake. So it's Mariwala Health Initiative. It works on mental health. Uh, yeah. So so we we are doing a book. So when is it coming out? Like, is there a date? Or I am not sure. I'm not sure it should come out in a month or two. Oh, okay. That's soon. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank uh, you. It's really a work of uh, many, many people. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm sure my name and I probably would get more visible, but it's really a work of many people. Uh, yeah. So that's that. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm actually amazed by the kind of work that you do because while from from the the facade seems to be that of just an anthology like a digital anthology but the work involves so much more and i don't know how you manage all that work because i you are also the co-founder of the matai society and i was wondering uh is this more focused on livelihood in moirang as opposed to uh, digital storytelling and I was wondering like what would be the differences between something that's happening only on the digital space uh, and something which is more like right. groundwork yeah right so I think sometimes the questions that are asked to somebody like me it's usually also asked from a very uh, let's say streamlined formal institution you know uh, lens you know, when you said, you know, is it more focused on livelihood? And I was like thinking like, you know, Matai Society or Singhama Project for me, it's, it's, it's work definitely, but it's really also life, you know. Uh, it is really life for me. Uh, and I'm sure for, for the other people in the society and the project as well. So 
livelihood is a major you know major aspect of our work but as much as life has different you know aspects to it you know be it health or education or legality or you know livelihood uh, i likewise my society is really a culmination of peripherality peripheral realities and uh, issues you know out there in the margin so that society doesn't have one i think designated issue that we work on we we are pretty much we are pretty much an advocacy based uh, you know society we are also a pretty much uh, you know community building community spaces building oriented society but we are also a very you know livelihood livelihood economic you know determinism uh, you know oriented society as well we don't fit it into category or of work as such that uh, you know any registered you know body likes to kind of label right so right. okay are you an education based organization are you a health based so there is that categories is to take and fill right i mean that's there for us as well you know like in the registration process you definitely you know follow certain norms but i think life goes beyond that everyday struggle goes beyond that so my society that way is really a struggle and an intervention and also solidarity of margin marginalized subjects and their realities uh we pretty much you know we pretty much combine our intervention our engagement intersect across you know from advocacy to livelihood to education to health you know right uh, but yes our focus uh work is livelihood right now because we happen to receive a small you know small grant to do that uh, you know so that's why our more visible work is uh, livelihood right now mm-hmm. um yeah so i hope that answers yeah <laughs> yeah sorry i mean if that question wasn't appropriate i was thinking more in terms of like where we get remunerated you know like uh my understanding is that uh, you know these stories are amazing but when someone sends a story it's only like huge big publishing houses like let's say first post or something that really pays mm-hmm. and they don't even pay much so but they you know sometimes they do pay but it's very difficult for uh independent community uh, based platforms to remunerate uh, writers or storytellers but i was thinking uh when i looked at the instagram uh page of matai society it seems like there was a lot of lot going on in terms of work which will be remunerated so definitely so that, yeah. yeah yeah so uh also i forgot to add wherein you also talked about you know digital storytelling versus a livelihood oriented you know society or project right and if i got you right the kind of let's say relationship or not no relationship between the kind of work that i happen to be part of mm-hmm. is that right yeah i mean i was just thinking about remuneration like what are these people earning how are they living their lives you know? right so we are mostly cis women trans and queer people working together uh, in moirang so three months of our project which was funded through a grant uh many of us were remunerated not me you know i had other ways of sort of other i have other other revenue you know 
options for me. I was doing this project, that project, right? Uh, so, but the other people, you know, like people who really come outside of the kind of world that we come from, like JNU, DU, this, that, right? Uh, so this people, uh, you know, uh, who've come from a different context altogether, you know, like from the margins of the margins. Yes, they were remunerated. So the trainers of the, you know, uh, livelihood project, the trainers, you know, who are training, uh, you know, young people, skill building. So the trainers, the program coordinator, they were paid uh, salaries for the three months. While the uh, young people who had come to, you know, take the training, they were not given, let's say, stipend, stipend per se, but their costs of taking the training, uh, you know, uh, their, their maintenance fee, everything was taken care of by the grant, um, you know, to the extent of filling up, uh, you know, giving out money for refreshments uh, as much as we could, as much as the society could, as much as the center could, right? Uh, also forgot to mention that the Lavihood project is also a joint venture of Matai Society and the Chengihomo project. So that happened for three months. And after three months, we had to switch to a slightly more sustainable model wherein, uh, you know, out of three months of training, uh, two months, the trainees who have come, who have come to take training, they would pay some fees, you know, for two months and one fee, one month, the cent, the one month we would compensate on their behalf, which means some of the money also goes to the trainers, you know, like the teachers, the mentors, right? So, so there are ways in which we are trying, we are reworking and working constantly. And, um, and, and to be very honest, it's really a small town where the market is very small, you know, like the products that they're selling, that they're making. Uh, it's mostly mosquito nets, bed sits, uh, pillows and all, pillow covers and all. So the market is very small. There are ups and downs in the market. There are times when they don't get work, right? Uh, so, and it affects the training processes and the revenue that they're getting. So uh, the center and the society and the Tinkyomo project try to come up with ways to kind of boost up you know during off season as well so that the money flow for them keeps coming in some way or the other um we also working towards let's say doing uh you know uh what you call there's something called marup in manipur wherein you know we it's it's like one of those saving investment that we do in a post office like small amount we, we invest small amount you know and then uh, we get you know, like 50,000, one lakh. And that, and with that, we would acquire more equipment. We would expand the work, you know? So that's how we are rolling. But it's really, really a very humbling process as well. A very hard one too. Uh, and we're talking about very little money. We are talking about very little money, you know? We're not talking about lakhs. We're only talking about a few thousands here, you know, a few thousands and few hundreds here. We're talking about very little money. And uh, thankfully, I think we've got the right, uh, so far we've got the right kind of support, the right kind of visibility, the right kind of, uh, let's say, donations, for example, you know, well-wishers. So recently, Kalama Mutual Aid Collective Base in the US did a crowdfunding for us during Pedman and they had collected uh, one lakh rupees for us. And 
that will eventually come to us and we would use that money to kind of boost up the existing program, the killing program, and also expand uh, wherever we can expand and bring more people who need it. So, yeah, that's a bit about remuneration. Yeah. I can feel the uh, immense excitement uh, in your voice, uh, which is great. And I was, I'm wondering also, like, the digital space seems very important to Matai society as well, how you sell your uh, work as in products or how you uh, raise funds. Uh, so is the digital space something that has been uh, good uh, in general, given how, you know, it's always dicey what happens uh, over the internet uh, or any of the social media pages? Has it served you well? Overall, uh, the, don- the donation by mutual uh, Kalama Mutual Ed Collective, which happened online, really worked well. We tried before with uh, Milaf, it didn't work well because mm-hmm. the platforms are also different. So I think digital space is as diverse as the real world. I think I think if you are in the right part of the digital space, I think it works uh, right. Uh, having said that, uh, Matai Society, which is really really a very under resource in our society uh we we haven't been able to invest much on the digital space uh we we just do the bare minimum of you know posting few updates and stories and right just the bare necessities you know that's it we are not able to leverage in terms of digital marketing uh digital advocacy uh community building through the digital platform which dch we could do to an extent right at Matai, we are not able to do because we are very, very under-resourced, including, uh, you know, human resource. So not much we're able to do, but I think there's a lot to explore uh, on the digital space. But I think on a daily basis, we are so consumed with what happens every day, you know, from, you know, rainwater leaking into the, you know, working space you know, into the workstation, inside the workstation, from rainwater leaking into it uh, to, you know, uh, let's say um, a strike that's happening and, you know, people not able to turn up uh, for the day to uh, society being under resource, having to juggle with three different things uh, or the municipality wanting to cross-check our registration mm-hmm. uh, to just the weather being so bad and we don't have an fan right now so things like that so we're so consumed by that uh that you know we 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 forgot that we have a digital space as well you know honestly but our uh dynamics our you know community network our space is very intact We, we are very strong we are very uh, you know, supportive of each mm-hmm. other. We are a good, strong, big family on ground. Uh, I'm not sure if that is getting reflected on the digital space of Matai society on Facebook and Instagram. We're not sure about that and we haven't actually thought so much. So, yeah, that, that's an area we haven't, uh, you know, figured out much. Yeah. I think it's Which is ironic. Sorry. DCHP. No, I was saying it's definitely being reflected, but I think there is less awareness about Matai society uh, as opposed to Chigihomo project, which of course has, a, you know, a huge, uh, I won't say fan base, but I guess a huge outreach 
compared to Matai society, uh, which I can feel uh, on this on this, on social media pages like uh, Instagram or uh, Facebook. I I didn't ask. I didn't add this question when I sent you this, and you did no. You don't have to respond to this. Uh, you know. Uh, but I was thinking, like, does the army play any role as such in how this work that you are doing is regulated? Or does the army have no role at all in Manipur? The armed forces, you mean? Yeah. Today, lesser than it used to be, definitely, like, definitely, way lesser. Uh, I think the intergenerational trauma that has passed down from the conflict, from the armed force, right, be it state or non-state, the trauma, the poverty, the mental health struggles, and its interrelated remnants, be it from drug, substance abuse, to rampant domestic violence, to, yeah, I think that is there. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, it's not a very visible, uh, you know, it's not a very visible on your face, easy to assess, um, yeah, assess, uh, situation. But I think I can feel it having lived here, right? Mm-hmm. So that definitely is passed down to us. And that those are, you know, be it trauma, be it mental health struggle, be it domestic violence experience, be it for poverty, you know, be it the loss of one's parents or grandparents during the conflict, right? Extrajudicial killing, for example. That trauma has obviously found its way. And those are huge barriers that we are able to barely, barely work out well, you know? We don't even have enough resources to deal with those things. Uh, and we and and also this is an area of conversation we haven't had enough at least in the circle that the society is you know amongst us uh, but that is definitely there that is definitely there so yeah that's how it plays a role thank you thank you for uh, responding uh, to that you were also I'm a student you were also a student in JNU and I'm wondering uh, have you have you like left academia? Was there a reason uh, in particular that you uh, decided not to come back, or are you planning to come back to either Delhi, JNU, or any other places uh, where you felt uh, seemingly or at least relatively safe? I'm still figuring out where is my space within academia and where is my voice within academia, right? So I'm still figuring out. I'm not sure. Uh, I didn't get those answers back then. So I, I left, you know, in a way. You know, I left because I had I didn't feel that belongingness personally. Also, I didn't feel the belongingness of my roots, of my lo- lo- local and people and, you know, our reality within academia. So that was difficult. So I left. So... Whether I have I left academia for good, I don't know for sure. But I think I haven't found my voice and my space within academia 
so far. So yeah, that's there. And I was thinking you're also from English, like me, uh, as a we studied English literature. And earlier there was a, a critique of academia that uh, you know when you mentioned the kind of questions that we ask, and it's true because. I feel like the kind of research that we do often tends to be extractive, and the onus is then on researchers to find better ways to do their work. And I'm not sure if, you know, if particularly ethnographers can do the work completely ethically while making sure that, uh, you know, when they publish their work, it's like co-published because academia encourages you to publish alone, uh, to do the research alone. And not the kind of collaboration that you know. It's not like as collaborative uh, as, let's say, the society that you founded or the project that you co-founded. So I don't know. I mean, it still has some good people, I guess, uh, and some money. But uh, we will see. But I guess if you want to come back, I'm sure uh, uh, it will be a great place for you to take your projects uh, further. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing to say. It's a hard question to answer here. Uh, I think no, I, yeah. where, where you come from and where you come from and who you are has a lot to has a lot in deciding whether corporate makes sense to you or whether academia makes sense to you mm -hmm. or whether grassroots. Makes sense to you, or whether art makes sense to you, right? And that that's definitely there. And like I said, I'm still figuring out. And 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 in the process, I probably wouldn't want to, you know, vilify or you know, villainize, you know, people out there in academia. Maybe I won't do that. But at the same time, please do. <laughs> I also want to, uh, but I still want to raise questions as to. How is that research impacting the very subjects of those research? Yeah, you know, how is that research empowering or giving space, you know, or giving agency to the very, very subject of that research? I think that's just my question to every every time this question issue has come up. Who's your subject of the research, and what roles are they playing in that research? The subjects of that research, right? So I think that would be my key question. Yeah, I think there's a. Uh, I don't know if you have already read this book, but uh, Linda Tuhiwai Smith uh, had written this book called "Decolonizing Methodologies" way back in I think the 90s. Uh, it's one of these pretty uh, iconic radical books on research methodologies, and she's very critical because she's indigenous, and she uh, is very critical of the way in which settler scholars treat indigenous uh, so-called subjects. So exactly what you were talking about. So you might just find it useful if you have. And and honestly, it's not just about academia. Even within the social developmental sector, mm -hmm. the struggles are there. The struggles mm -hmm. are there, right? It's always it's always uh, the powerful and the resourceful. You know, like uh, you know, coming from a top-down approach to kind of impact the world, impact the minority and the marginalized side. So that struggle is also within the social developmental sector as to who's taking decisions, as to who's yeah. representing what, who's taking the decision, who's, who's making those decisions, who's, who's signing those MOUs and, you know, things like that. Mm. So that's not academia. I think it's just everywhere. Um, mm. Yeah, just everywhere. And 
yeah that that definitely is the struggle as well yeah the power mm. struggle oh but but, but yeah. to talk about the book that you mentioned i haven't read books uh, in a long time besides the ones which my friends wrote or which i happen to be part of so i haven't written, read books in a long time and this introduction that, you can try the introduction and then decide if you want to read the book <laughs> not because i lost interest just because i haven't i haven't had the time and also not the yeah. mental space yeah not the physical space as well <laughs> so when yeah. i leave it's it's such a it's just right across the highway and the the leaves uh, reading conducive space it's very noisy and you know the space where i live is very small and we also have society office society community space and also the center is right across so uh, and reading happens to be not one of the most you know uh, important thing that we do collectively so yeah reading has kind of sort of side got sidelined a little bit yeah that's there but which is ironical you know because i'm to- also talking about you know having work on a book and being going to be published soon <laughs> so i'm not sure if i'm doing the right promotion as to you know <laughs> as to run up of the book of the publication so yeah but i'm just being honest yeah but reading also i mean i, I think it's also a bit of a privilege to read and in, to read in english in as you mentioned earlier that the uh, yeah. the anthology of course is in english and mm. may not have an audience across certain communities uh, yeah in in the northeast so what, I, what i learned at tchp that besides the best intention it still is an english anthology and it has its limitations you know as to who are we representing and who are we speaking for and things like that so in the book with mariwala have an initiative we decided to bring the vernacular languages in the mm-hmm. book so uh, there are eight stories from the eight different states The Nagaland story is a little different it's more visual oriented while the rest of the other states including Sikkim we have a story written in english and then that story being translated to their vernacular language of the storyteller so it's a multilingual wow. book and i think it's an attempt to capture the diversity of language and you know language in the region and we managed to work with seven uh, vernacular languages So let's see if we can, you know, scale up this, you know, uh, this. Let's say scale up this effort towards making more multilingual. And if that we, if we can bring that to TCHP, then it makes it more diverse and you know, and a better platform and a better archive. So yeah, that's also there. Yeah, I I can remember. I think it was Aina Nagar, if I'm not mistaken, who also tried to. uh include vernacular or am i confusing it maybe with akhilanadi's uh anthology but i i'm also uh eager to understand why anthology is so popular uh like not just now we have had yarana or pushpai hoshang merchant or facing the mirror by ashwini sukthankar and these days we are having a lot of film anthologies right So is there something about the form that encourages people because it's sort of you can put together a number of stories from various perspectives is is it that that is encouraging people to come out with more anthologies Well I've never thought about it honestly 
<laughs> but I can say for sure that writing a full full length book, like a novel, for instance, you know, or a nonfiction biography, for instance, you know, a full length, definitely is very very challenging in its own way. Uh, yes, writing or editing an anthology is also challenging, but I personally feel uh, that an anthology at least captures more lives, more stories, and the challenge is worth it. You know, the challenge is worth it. While while often biography or of a novel, you know, like a memoir, like a novel, you know, I feel it's a little way too celebratory of one person or you know, like few people or a family. I'm not so comfortable. But again, depends. I mean, that's not a nice way to actually answer it. So with anthology, what happens is it it allows for me at least to work with many people. You know, it's a very very collaborative process. It allows for me to work with many people, and I think that is very important to me. Uh, to work with many many with many other people out there. So. A number one, it's very very collaborative as to how many storytellers are there. That's there. Uh, it also I think helps me again as an editor or a curator to kind of tell a tell tell stories that has diversity within. You know, if I tell just you know like one person story, I'm not sure how I can how I'm able to capture and tell uh, you know stories which are always I think. There are always an there's always elements of diversity, right? I mean, one person story. I'm not sure what kind of story can actually tell just just of one person or or I don't know, you know, one person or one family. Um, that's there to the publisher or to the funder. I think it also gives a certain promise that this will work. You know what I mean? That this is not going to be a disaster or a loss. Look at it. I mean, I have like you know ten people, eight people. You know who have who who bring this elements and this diversity, and and this book, this product, uh, has a strong chance to work out there in the uh, you know among the audience and among the you know, book industry. Uh, uh, even if one of the stories didn't work, the seven other stories will work so well. I mean, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I think it also gives a strong pitch to the publisher and anthology as such, especially somebody like me. Who's apparently editing with the help of other people? Um, I mean, how much stake you have in the industry is also a question as to publishing, right? Uh, I'm not sure if any of the publisher would be so happy to do a, you know, to do like a, you know, biography or a memoir or a novel that I've written because my stake in the industry may be small, but with ten other people coming in the book, I think the stake just got a little bigger. So I think that's also there. That's why anthologies are working. Sorry. Yeah, I, I was wondering, like, do you mean that, uh, like, let's say, mainstream publishers would not be willing to publish a book written solely by you? Any publisher, barring very few, mm-hmm. would not be interested in publishing a if it is not going to be picked up by audience or readers. Mm-hmm. And there are very there are many sort of. Checklist to do that, to do you know while while making those decisions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to use the word, but market, industry, audience is a big thing. I, like I said, barring barring few yeah. publishers or whatever you know, 
editors so it's more about like uh, icons and like celebrities uh, is that what you're saying uh, what i'm saying is there are, there are ways in which the industry works the book industry the publication industry there are ways in which work because it also involves money right so there are ways in which work and uh, honestly i also negotiate quite a bit in terms of you know like when i'm pitching a book when i'm pitching a story i negotiate because the world i mean when did the world choose to become nicer to people like us right and uh, with i mean people have fought for so long i mean i i'm one of those fortunate person you know whose battle and struggle of being queer or trans have been actually way lesser than a lot of people before us you know or 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 amongst mm-hmm. us you know different contexts and live realities one thing is uh, i can't talk about probably the mainstream publishing industry maybe i don't have enough knowledge or information but one thing is to somebody like uh, me or you or somebody like us from the community quite on spoke when did the world open up to us when did they start giving space to us and even today i think there's a lot of uh, let's say an anxiousness angst fear mistrust as to okay will this work will this not work you know what i mean so a lot of negotiations also happen uh, in order to in order to complete a work in order to get resources for work uh that's definitely there you know i've been told repeatedly that oh the corporate has so much resources you know and they're trying to splurge it during pride month and i'm like i have no idea where the resources are <laughs> i literally have no idea you know and the ones i know uh and in fact some good intention ones that i know you know they don't seem to have that much resources also you know to cater to you know queer trans folks in manipur all queer trans folks in sikkim to reach out to everyone you know like like there's so many of the people to whom you have to reach out there's so many issues that you have to but you have very uh, little resources to distribute right so that's what i mean that's also partly there yeah also who is being uh desired and how like because a book is also about consumption and who wants to mm. read your story it's a way almost like desiring you uh, which mm. actually brings me to the last question uh, because you documented your physical uh, transformation via dream and i remember mm. your uh, posts like those very sexy calf muscles and how you worked on them for over 6 months and i was like wow i wish i could do that uh, so do you think like body image is an important uh, aspect of desire uh, or do you think it's something uh, which is more specific to who you are and where you are from uh, what i'm trying to say is that is it more of a generalized thing that desire and like the body image is something that is so typical to why we desire someone or how we desire someone or is it more specific to let's say uh, how you are being Uh, treated in mainstream or racialized in mainstream uh, india well i think uh, to answer your question uh, i i can't give a straight answer number one i think body image is a very unhealthy issue i think you know to be constantly aware or being pressured or you know uh, to be burdened by it i think it's a very very unhealthy thing right to have that and 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 I, in fact i can give example from my own personal experience you know i was so conscious of my body image way back you know like like i said 
uh, let's say three years before from now, three years back, you know, let's say, at, you know, some years of my life from let's say 2014, uh, 15, 2018, 19, uh, I was very, very conscious of my body image. And in fact, that was unhealthy in some ways. Uh, it definitely helped me, you know, get better you know, like get stronger, fitter, definitely that. But it was also unhealthy because at some point, I think I pushed my limits so much that I hurt my nerves or ankles or ligaments and things like that. So body image can be very, very unhealthy. And I learned it in my own experience. Uh, also, I think it tends to reduce my personhood to a body image. You know what I mean? Like somebody looking at me, somebody design, desiring me, and the fact that I was actively consciously working to, towards improving my body image and body as such. Uh, I think that kind of reduces me to a certain entity, you know, like, uh, so the last few years, I think I've kind of outgrown, unlearned, and learned new things as well, evolved in, in a way that, uh, while I continue to be conscious of my health and my body, I have stopped being conscious of body image, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that's that's really there. So I've grown in a way that I still want to be healthy, I still want to be fit, I still want to be strong uh, and beautiful, of course, and desirable, but but not, not constantly conscious of the body image. But to be conscious of the body, I think is great. But to be conscious of the body image can be very, very unhealthy. Uh, unhealthy amongst, amongst you know, like queer people also, you know, like young queer people as well. An example to give is like, you know, like uh, there is there's a lot of discrimination also, right, that, that exists amongst, yeah, us, yeah. amongst us based on body types and body image, right? On dating apps, yeah. yeah. Yeah, dating, etc., etc. I have been on the privilege front for sure. Uh, you know, not to go through that so much. Uh, but, but in Delhi, yes. I mean, I personally also went through body shaming or, you know, uh, body shaming, which has a tinge of racial, ethnic, you know, class, uh, you know, factors to it. Uh, but just to say that it is a, it can be very, very unhealthy to kind of define one's desirability around just body image. I think that can be unhealthy. And that's that's also limiting the sense of one's personhood, which is much more than just the body. I think there's also creativity, talent, you know, ideology, uh, career, etc., etc., right? So, yeah, it can be very, very unhealthy. Yeah, and it can actually stop you from exploring some beautiful relationships which could add work, you know, because of other things and not body image. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. this is, of course, more of a personal question, but then are you thinking about uh, companionship beyond alternate family structures? Are you planning to have any kind of... Uh, biological children because i mean there's so much going on now in the country with regard to same-sex marriage uh new bills coming up which is restricting uh art procedures like the you know fertilization procedures for single parents so are you at all concerned are you keeping track of any of these new uh legislations over the years i have gone through different different you know 
sentiments and thought processes around singlehood, fatherhood, parenthood, etc., etc. I've gone through different, different thought processes and sentiments around it. And I've said with my friends as well, you know, at some point I was like, I want to have an adopted child, you know. At some point I was like, I don't want to have an adopted child as well. So those things have happened. And at this point right now in 2022, I think talking of alternate families and, you know, uh, bonding, I think I already have it, you know, with the society and with DCHP, I think I already have it. So whether I want to have a baby or not, and also what's the kind of, let's say, legalities around it, I'm not keeping a very, very, uh, you know, close, keen, uh, you know, check on that. Uh, because I think at the moment, I'm not sure whether I want to have, you know, children of my own, like, you know, through surrogacy and et cetera, and et cetera, or through adoption. That's something I'm not sure of, because I think I'm not even sure of my own take on relationships, you know, like romance or partnership. I'm not even sure of that for now. So I can't think of children, you know, for mm-hmm. now. But in terms of alternate families, yes, I think I already have it. Yeah, that's good to uh, so, I mean, I don't have any other questions. So thank you so much for taking out time to do this interview. And I will send you the edited audio as soon as I'm done in a couple of days, perhaps. Uh, any last comments or thoughts? Uh, well, it took us so long to actually have a chat together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that that's quite funny as well. Uh, but... But I'm also not surprised uh, this has happened with me as well, you know, in relation to other people. So it's funny, mm-hmm. definitely, but something that do happen. Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, I think at some point our journeys were to kind of, you know, cut through each other, right? Yeah. Despite, however, our journeys are different, I'm sure at some point we had to cross each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish I had sort of contacted you earlier and when you were in Delhi, uh, when, sorry, when you were in the Kolkata recently and maybe right, we right. could have met then, yeah. <laughs> thank you back. for, uh, yeah. thank you for, uh, you know, having me actually. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>